Welcome to the Sports Finder Podcast. Let's get ready to rumble! Sports Finder community, we're back with our regular segment where we speak to great people from the world of sports. And today, it is no different with Mr. Terry Echuritakis. Terry, welcome to the show, buddy. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure, mate. Terry, um, before we get into your day-to-day and what, and what you're currently working on, let's go back in time. Who was Terry as a young man at school? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, still, still trying to figure that one out. So I grew up in Long Island, a town called Port Washington. So Long Island, New York, right outside of, uh, of New York City and Manhattan. Um, when I graduated high school in 2007, I went to college pretty nearby. Uh, I went to the Bronx at Fordham University, uh, Jesuit College right by the Bronx Zoo and the Botanical Gardens there. I uh, lived on campus for, for a couple of years and then uh, lived off campus my senior year and had no idea what I was going to do. So I got into the business school with a business administration major because I couldn't decide what exactly what path I was going to take. All of my friends were, were going into finance and accounting, which is what Fordham is, is known for being close to the city. Uh, so actually my sophomore year, I did an internship at UBS, uh, who just bought the naming rights of the new Islanders arena, uh, did an internship there, realized pretty quickly that the finance world was not really exciting or interesting for me. Uh, so I was trying to figure out what exactly I would do after that. So I, I changed my major to marketing and then with a history minor, uh, which is a passion of mine, love history. And my work study job at the time was um, event staff worker. So I would work the Fordham University volleyball and basketball games. And it was, it was a great time to, to make some money um, doing that. But that led me to an event staff posting for the New York Jets, you know, my favorite NFL team. Uh, so I got that job to be an event staff worker with the Jets. I did that throughout college uh, from actually sophomore, junior and senior year. Um, and it was basically kind of, you know, odd jobs type of stuff, refilling the Gatorade coolers, uh, you know, working at the training camps and putting up tarps, pretty much any job you can think of a lot of inflatables, uh, for the kids camps. Um, but that was kind of my first foray into professional sports and the business of sports. Um, but still, that wasn't front office by any means. That was just kind of an entry-level uh, event staff job in college. And then my senior year, uh, going into the fall semester, uh, we had a career fair, and everybody there was finance and accounting, as you can expect with, with our school's pedigree. But Madison Square Garden happened to be there as well. And um, I went to their table and said, look, I'm, I work for the Jets as an event staff worker. It's not impressive, but here's my resume. And if you have any internships, I would, I would love to, to be considered. So they called me later that week. 
um, they had an internship available for the fall for corporate partnerships in the MSG entertainment side. Um, so I started doing that, um, working throughout my senior year at MSG corporate partnerships on the entertainment side. And at that time, you know, the business of MSG was separated between sports, which was the Knicks, the Rangers, and the New York Liberty um, entertainment. So that was all of our concert series, uh, the Rockettes, um, Radio City Music Hall, the Beacon Theater, the Chicago Theater. So I was working on the corporate sponsorships for uh, the entertainment. So a lot of Rockette partnerships um, with the Ronald McDonald House and McDonald's, uh, some other partners that we had every time there was an activation, I would have to be there at Radio City. Uh, so it was a cool, um, it was a cool taste to understand what has to happen on the activation side of sponsorships while I was a senior. And um, once my senior year ended, I had to get a full-time job. So I literally applied to every open position that the MSG internal HR website had anything that said entry level. Wow. And there, there, yeah, there was a job posting for subscription sales. I had no idea what that meant. Thought it was selling magazines. <laughs> um, and so I applied to that. And then I also applied for coordinator for corporate sponsorships uh, on the MSG sports side. I got an interview for that. And I was interviewed luckily by a gentleman named Bill Smith, who was a Fordham alumni um, and also the sales director at the time. And he was pretty frank with me. He said, look, this is an entry level support role. It's not gonna be good for somebody straight out of college. You're supporting three sponsorship sales directors, you know, type A personalities. It's not the right role for you, but you know, you're a Fordham guy, I wanna, I wanna help you. What other jobs did you apply to? So I told him about that subscription sales role, which is selling season tickets. Uh, so he got me an interview for that and I got the job right after I graduated. So that was, uh, that was how I broke into sports was getting really lucky by interviewing with a guy who went to Fordham. I was already at Madison Square Garden for my internship and that got me to the top of the pile to, uh, to get an interview for season ticket sales, which MSG gets hundreds of those interviews and, and resumes for that. Uh, so I was able to break in that way uh, with inside sales and yeah, everything kind of, oh, the stars aligned for that. But even up until that time, I had no inkling or desire to break into to the sports business. My, I was a volunteer firefighter. So that was my thing. I was going to become a firefighter in New York. Um, but then everything just kind of went this way while I was at MSG and I got into inside sales and succeeded from there. And it's turned into uh, a pretty, pretty good, fruitful and productive career for the last 11 years. I mean, you, you said something that's, that's really got my attention. And I want to ask you, how much do you think the college you went to impacts you getting or not getting a job? Like based off what you've seen so far? I can only speak, to, I can speak to my experience. I think for me, it was pivotal for me to have gone to Fordham. And the reason why I wanted to go to Fordham again was because it was close by to my hometown. Being in the volunteer fire department in my hometown was very important to me. So I wanted to be close. 
Um, I wasn't really thinking about the business benefits or the networking benefits about being in the Bronx nearby to Manhattan. But well, now that I look back at it, it was extremely important to be that close because I was able to get internships throughout the, throughout the school year in a time when the majority of people are away at school. So most of the people in my peer group, most of my friends, they went out of state to college. And one of the selling points of Fordham is we're in the Bronx, we're 45 minutes away from downtown, from Manhattan, um, and you can do an internship throughout the school year and you're not competing against thousands of other people because most of those people can only do summer, most of those students can only do summer internships because they're away at school, they're not there. Um, so that helped a lot to get some internship experience. And then having the Jets and Madison Square Garden close by at you know our career fairs also unlocked an opportunity. Um, but like, like I said, I wasn't totally focused on getting a career in sports. This, this kind of all was a bunch of circumstances and coincidences that, that worked out into me getting a career in sports. Yeah, it all came together, I guess. Actually, we, we yeah. had the, um, the senior director of partnerships from the Jets mm -hmm. on our podcast earlier, Andrew Agro. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not too sure if you know him, but I think he was there same time as you were. He's yeah, we crossed paths while while I was in event staff, and I think he was in group sales, or he was there already. Yeah. Yeah, he, he said to me that was his he interned there, and that's how his journey started. So, yeah. That's it. Like from what I've seen so far, the internship is so important. It's everything because mm -hmm. it gives you that foot in the door that you. Um, that you would have never have, have have got otherwise. Yeah, totally. It's it's an unfair advantage. If you aren't already in the organization, you know, and you don't have a way to kind of meet people on a one to one basis, then then you're already at a disadvantage, right? You're you don't when you email somebody internally, and they see it's an internal email, they're going to open that. If you're, if you're blindly emailing people because you're a college kid that's trying to break into the industry, that's, you already have the odds stacked against you. It but it's is. all about what, and I know we're skipping ahead because you want to cover this probably later in the podcast, but that's right. it's, it's all about maximizing the opportunity. So if you're in an organization, like for me, I kind of did it just because I was at the garden. I knew I was coming up with, to graduation. And I literally applied to every entry level role on the internal HR website, but I was already in the organization. Um, Absolutely. But, but if I look at, now that I look back at it, how I should have spent that year was instead of just waiting for the last moment and blindly applying to stuff, I should have been tactfully reaching out to internal executives while I was already inside the organization and setting up exploratory and introductory meetings. I didn't do that. Obviously now hindsight's 2020. That's my advice to anyone listening to this is if you're in an organization, do that, you know, maximize your internal networking because you don't want to wait till the last minute of your internship and then try to apply to stuff. Yeah. 
Uh, wise words. Um, let's go. Let's get. Let's get into your time at Premier Partnerships. Um, mm-hmm. Sounds like a bit of an interesting switch from Madison <laughs> yeah. Square Garden. Totally, totally a switch. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me at the Garden, it was it was a great ride selling during the transformation of this iconic arena, this iconic property. Um, so I started in season ticket sales, did that for three seasons. And then I was in our corporate hospitality group um, selling suites for two seasons. And by the end of, towards the tail end of that corporate um, hospitality stint, I had an eye towards sponsorships. Uh, because of my internship, I already had some exposure to it. But also in kind of the traditional sports sales track, that is kind of the path. It's you start off in season tickets, making a hundred phone calls a day. And then you got, you get to sweet sales or premium sales, they call it. And you're making not a hundred phone calls a day, but you're still, you know, you've got a big number on your head. And then the, the next thing that everyone's trying to do is, is get from selling sweets and tickets to selling sponsorship. Um, and, and luckily at MSG, because of my relationship with Bill, who had helped me get my foot in the door with the entry level job, he was always willing um, to kind of let me shadow him and, and was a mentor to me to help me understand how I could break into the sponsorship group. And at the time, there really wasn't much turnover in terms of people leaving the sponsorship group. Um, so roles were limited. You never really saw ticket sellers that even the top performing ones break into the sponsorship group. Um, it just, just never really happened. So in my mind, I thought, okay, if I'm going to break into sponsorships and the opportunity is not at Madison square garden, I'm going to have to leave and figure out where is there a place where I can learn sponsorships? Cause that's really what I needed to do was, was learn the basics of the business beyond just what I had from my mentorship. Um, so I found premier partnerships, reached out to them and learned that they are essentially the naming rights agency. Um, they started as really, I think the only dedicated property sales and consulting firm focused on naming rights. So in my mind, I'm like, if I'm going to break into sponsorships, I should just go for the biggest thing possible, you know, work for the agency that just really has naming rights as the focus, which is the, the largest level of sponsorship you could ever sell. And, and really the ones that invented kind of this holistic view of looking at sponsorships with properties and consulting them. Um, and there was a great pedigree there because um, the CEO, Randy Bernstein, and the chairman, Alan Rothenberg, were involved in professional sports in the beginning. They helped move the Clippers from San Diego to LA. Um, they were part of uh, beginning Major League Soccer in its infancy, so starting a league and then helping bring the World Cup here in 94. Um, so that was a, it was totally a switch to go from, you know, a publicly traded conglomerate sports entertainment company to a boutique agency, you know, with about 20 to 25 employees and helping to start an office in New York uh, under my old boss at the time, Jason Miller. Um, but also when I met him, I knew that he was going to be somebody special because I'd originally met him when he was at the Dolphins. And when he called me that he was going to be 
starting this office in New York for Premier and he needed kind of a rookie sponsorship seller that he could teach. I remember my first time meeting him. I'm like, I would totally work for this guy. And uh, it was a pretty easy decision. So Jason taught me the basics of sponsorships. We were selling naming rights to the World Trade Center, the Miami Marlins um, under their old ownership. The, what is now Mercedes-Benz Stadium, but it was uh, the new stadium project in Atlanta for Arthur Blank Sports Entertainment. So at a young age, I got exposure to multiple properties, learning from this top seller um, who came from the NFL. So these guys used to, so the sporting teams used to outsource that, that component of it to these guys? Yeah, so... Most of these teams, the traditional sports teams that, that we work with, um, they had a sponsorship group. Yeah. But where, where they would outsource or hire us was to actually develop a plan, a go-to-market plan, if they were going to have to resell their naming rights or they were building a new facility or they were going to renovate. And it was kind of similar to what we had at the Garden at MSG. You had when we were going through the transformation, you had a separate group that was just selling the new building while the existing group was just selling the current seasons that the teams are playing in. So like Mercedes-Benz Stadium, Arthur Blank Sports Entertainment, they hired us to build out the go-to-market strategy and plan and the sponsorship hierarchy for this new stadium. But the Falcons already had a sponsorship group that was focused on selling their current season and the remaining seasons they were going to have in their current home. You're kind of looking towards the future when you're, when you're hiring this agency um, and you're selling something that is, is forward looking that you don't want to saddle your existing sponsorship group with because they need to be focused on the, the day to day of their current sponsorship business. So that's when we would get engaged. Um, usually it was with a consulting project first, and then there would be sales representation um, if it made sense for both parties. Can you take us into the uh, whole cycle of um, how the naming rights world works? Because uh, it's not too common where people can sit here and say, um, yeah, we, we signed up, let's say for, for argument's sake, yeah. The uh, Mercedes-Benz stadium rides and it involved this and it involved that. So, like, we're talking huge enterprises yeah. and companies and big numbers. And what's what's it like dealing with, with these people? That um, tough, nitty-gritty. What's a lifetime of of a deal look like? You know, mm-hmm. just these intimate well, things that to, aren't very public. Sure. So. To- just to be clear, I'm, I was no way involved really in the Mercedes-Benz stadium. <laughs> deal. I yeah. I just use that as just, just, that's, just an example. Yeah. That's it, I don't want to, I don't want to claim any false credit. I yeah, uh, was so involved good. in the, I was involved in the project. I mean, it was really handled. All these conversations and negotiations were handled from our CEO to my boss, Jason, who's our head of sales. And then the property, um, as well. So the property usually would have the president or the chief business officer or the chief revenue officer or the head of partnerships. They would be the ones that would negotiate these deals. I was a hunter. 
Um, so basically it was myself, my other counterparts in the New York office in Los Angeles and Chicago that would actually reach out to brands to try to drum up conversations. And we would have a target list of brands that would be vetted by the, by the property, by the sports team. And, and we would make outreach and set up these meetings and these calls. Um, but with the meetings and calls being so high level, I mean, to your point, we're, we're reaching out about multiple, you know, 10 year minimum deals for hundreds of millions of dollars for, to, to put your name on a stadium. And it goes way beyond just branding. There needs to be a meaningful partnership um, behind that uh, with so many different elements. So most of those calls and meetings, we would be joined by our head of sales or our uh, executive team or and the property it's themselves so as an outside agent you know we were working super close with the property on every one of these conversations and they would these deals would take minimal you know six minimum six months but i mean even that's a quick deal a naming rights deal would take it almost a year if not longer um so it, it's a long sales cycle and and they're super rare when they happen you know, although it seems now there's been a lot of action in the naming rights space um, with transactions like UBS's announcement yesterday. Yeah, um, I actually had um, Michael from the N NHL Seattle, their, their new mm -hmm. stadium. The day that he jumped on my podcast, he was telling me on about they were in talks with a big tech partner. Yeah. And, um, and, and that was ongoing for months and months and months. And he said to me, you know, it's really crazy. It's up and down crazy. nonstop. Yeah. So that's why it, I, I thought, you know, it's, it's, it's no easy, easy process. And the next day I come out and say, Amazon's mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, being in Seattle, it was either going to be Amazon or Microsoft. So <laughs> it's, it's the, the most, it's the most difficult sale you can make. I mean, it's the most complex sale you can do in sports sponsorship sales, right? Is the naming rights level. And for me, just personally, the hardest thing for me to wrap my arms around was I was going from a top performer at Madison Square Garden from ticket sales and then corporate hospitality where we were doing, you were doing transactions pretty much every week, right? So you had that internal gratitude, that internal affirmation that you're doing a good job. And then when you go to, sell something at the level of naming rights. I mean, there's probably a handful of people who've even done a deal in their lifetime. So my, my, my entire mindset had to change on what's, what constituted a good day, what constituted a good week. I mean, the wins were just about getting qualified meetings with brands and you're reaching out to CMOs. I mean, you're not going really below that because that's a CMO level conversation. So even just getting a meeting on the books with a CMO, you know, was a win. Um, because when you get into regular sponsorships in terms of, you know, normal team sponsorships, at least there you're getting some transactions every few months, you're getting deals done. But if it's just strictly naming rights, which is what we were focused on at Premier, you could go your entire career there like me without having a naming rights sold. Thankfully, and um, during my time there, we did bring on properties where we were able to do lower level deals um, like the Chargers, the Alamo Dome, um, and a few others. So that's really where I got to bite my teeth on team sponsorships. But while it was just naming rights, it was 
it's a struggle and, and you have to, to reframe your mindset on what's on, on being satisfied with your performance. Well, um, sounds like a bit of an uh, interesting journey, actually. Let's, let's, yeah. let, let's, let's go into your uh, time at LAFC. Mm-hmm. Um, what made the switch? Like, what, yeah. what, what, why'd you move there? And what's it, what is it like there? Yeah, so um, when I was in my third year at Premier, um, still in the New York office, we brought on the, the Chargers as a sales representation client. And the Chargers had just moved from San Diego to LA um, and we became their sales agent here in Los Angeles. So I started coming here pretty much every other week. Uh, I would set up meetings in New York and then I would spend a week in LA going from meeting to meeting to meeting. And, and we were doing deals um, for them for, to, while they got settled in the market. Um, and they were playing at the time at the StubHub Center in Carson. So it was also interesting to, to see NFL football in a, in a soccer specific stadium, which was really Stop. cool. Okay. It's, it's, yeah. it's changed names now. It used to be, um, it was Home Depot Center and then StubHub Center. Um, and then last year, Dignity Health bought the naming rights from StubHub. So that was an AEG deal. Um, that's the home of the galaxy. Um, so I was spending a lot of time here. And then um, when my lease was up, my uh, girlfriend, now fiance, uh, we were thinking about where we we're going to move. And she's originally from California, from Northern California. Um, but it, it made sense for me to come out here and, and just be totally focused on working with the chargers and working on this project. Uh, so we made the move out here two years ago um, to Santa Monica and I was totally dedicated at Premier on this chargers project and, and the sponsorship sales for that. So working closely with their in-house team um, and their chief revenue officer, uh, Jim Rushton. So that was a, a really rewarding experience. I learned a lot um, about team sponsorships and just learning how to work with all the different stakeholders internally, which is tougher for me because I'm an outside agency. You know, I'm not an internal employee, um, but we had some great wins. And towards the end of that project, when I found out, you know, Premier's role was pretty much done, I was trying to figure out what my next role would be. And in my mind, I was, I, I wanted to go back to a property. You know, it's this agency a stint for three and a half years trying to sell naming rights. That was, that was a long enough ride. It was great. I learned a lot, um, but I wanted to, to go back to our property. So the chargers were the obvious one, but I already kind of already was doing that job as an agency for them. So I had that experience. So I wanted to see what else was out here. And it was tough because I didn't have my network here as I had in New York. Um, but I noticed LAFC, uh, had a director role open. Um, so I reached out, they invited me to go to their first playoff game. And I didn't know what to expect. I had read about the development of LAFC. I knew that Will Ferrell and, you know, Magic Johnson and Mia Hamm were owners. So there was some celebrity power behind it, but I'm not an, I wasn't an MLS guy by any means. Um, and that first playoff game, that first game when they hosted me, I was blown away. I had never seen anything like it 
Uh, the only atmosphere that I could equate to what I saw there was, you know, New York Rangers playoff games, like Stanley Cup finals was that type of volume. And we were at a soccer match in downtown Los Angeles at this brand new stadium. So in my mind, I just wanted to know how the hell did they build this thing? And how did they get a sellout crowd for every game up until then? Because that was their first season. And that's what really piqued my interest. And, and the more I talked to them, the more I realized they were doing things that were totally innovative. There's a ton of resources behind them and they wanted to just be best in class and, and deliver the best live sports experience in, in the city. And I, I thought they'd achieved it already. So it made no, it, it was no, um, you know, it was pretty easy for me to, to make that decision of I'm going to join this club and get on the train of major league soccer, which is on this upward trajectory. Definitely growing. The game of soccer is growing all over the world, growing in, in the US. Um, but you, uh, you, you mentioned something. You said that they're, they're very innovative and they're doing things very, very differently. Do you, do you have any examples of, of, of what they're doing that's different to everyone else? Yeah. Well, what really got me when I met, when I met their um, head of community uh, Richard Roscoe. So Brandon, there's no marketing department. It's called Brandon Community, which already I was like, this is different. Okay. I like it. Um, what, what really got me when I first met him was when he explained how it was such a collaborative effort to build the brand, build the club and really build the stadium. I mean, we had supporters that were in the initial group of 12 supporters, you know, the founding members that had input on designing the stadium, designing the supporter section. I mean, there were whiteboard sessions with supporters about what they want to see in a stadium. And I thought that type of collaboration was, was really groundbreaking because there's usually a separation of the front office of an organization and the fans. And here, it really did seem to be one giant family, one giant club. And that was actually cemented to me when I first, when I joined, um, you know, we were, were, they put me on a group me, uh, like group or we like a, a chat group with all of our major supporters and all the major stakeholders. And we we're all aligned, speaking on a daily basis and sharing content. And a lot of the content was user, was, was fan generated. So it really felt like you weren't part of this organization. You were part of a movement, you know, this grassroots movement that built this amazing experience. Um, so that was innovative just from a development perspective and their mindset of how to build a team from scratch in a market where there was already 10 professional teams, right? There's a, we're the 11th professional team. So it's a very cluttered market. You have UCLA and USC, which are basically professional teams on their own, right? So it's really <laughs> 13, 13 yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and, real, and, and if you looked at the odds that are stacked against this group, you know, building a stadium in downtown starting in 2015 and then achieving sold out season tickets, you know, right before they opened the stadium in 2018 and then selling out every single game for that first year and then even since then like that in in los angeles with all these other distractions 
and the weather and all these other team options, it, it just didn't seem possible. Um, so I think that grassroots innovation was, and, and that focus of giving kind of ownership of building the club to the fan, you know, and having their voice heard was, was very impactful because they feel they have a sense of ownership. This, this is theirs. This is something that they had a hand in building. Um, we even flew 12 supporters to, before we opened to, to Dortmund in Germany to learn about their culture at Borussia Dortmund. And they have that famous yellow wall of 40,000 fans. We have a mini version of that, but I'd like to think that it's because, you know, our ownership group saw the vision of flying 12 leaders from our supporters group to learn from the best. And they brought back valuable insight, you know, to replicate that experience here. Um, no other team I would think would, would, would actually think about flying 12 of their fans, you know, all expenses paid to learn from a European team. Um, so that was, that was interesting. And then from the business side, just what they were doing on, even from just deck presentation style was different than, than anything that I'd worked with at other teams um, and at Premier. Um, it was all about imagery, not so much uh, text heavy presentation. So that was something that was interesting from the sales side that immediately got my attention. And then when, we, when I dove deeper, behind the group that, that created all of our creative uh, presentations, but then also they're the data and strategy group as well. So you literally have the data group that has all the impressions, that's doing all the partnership measurement, is also building your go-to-market decks. I thought that was innovative as well. Usually, you know, there's a separation there. You have analytics separate from the partnership sales solutions group or the strategy group here. It was all one and they were involved in every aspect of the business. So in my mind as a seller, I'm like, there is a ton of resources here, um, you know, to support sales. And then we have this amazing property that's still a blank slate. You know, there was no branding anywhere. There was, there, there, there wasn't the NASCAR type of environment like other stadiums where you just, you're inundated with signs. It was a totally clean building. So that was an innovative approach as well, was keeping the building clean, putting in partnership thre thresholds to, to kind of unlock big assets. And I just liked everything I saw. Wow. Interesting. Um, you guys, the sporting sector, I'd say, is one of the industries that's um, been very heavily impacted because entertainment, events, sport, they go hand in hand. Yeah. How has that affected your your day-to-day, -day, Terry? I mean, you're selling partnerships and sponsorships and, you know, all, all the rest mm -hmm. of it. Brands want exposure. Brands need people in stadiums sometimes to do in-house in, in um, engagement activities so on, so on, fan engagement. How have you guys had to pivot, change things up and really um, bolster the way you're engaging fans and giving these brands the exposure that, that you guys have, have agreed to? Yeah, it's certainly been a challenge. <clears throat> I mean, this year was, this is our third season and we had 
we had we're going into it 52 partners roughly um leading the league and and partnership revenue um so this was going to be our year you know we were the supporter shield champions last year which is the best record um it was a record-breaking season so we thought this was going to be this was going to be it and then obviously COVID happened and threw a giant wrench into all of our visions um but what we had to do quickly was figure out how we can still deliver this, the value that certain sponsors, that all sponsors are looking for. And every single sponsor is different in what they're looking to get out of the deal and what drove them to, to partner with us. So we had to, and, and thankfully we have a very strong partnership marketing group um, that activates all of our, our sponsorships, but it was immediately brainstorming um, as soon as you start working from home about different type of activations and digital platforms we can attach our, our current sponsors to, to, to create make good opportunities um, and, and still keep our sponsors relevant while we're not playing games. So that would range from, you know, we would do a trivia night on our app every Tuesday. We had DJ nights every Saturday that we, our liquor and, and beer partners could be a part of. Um, we had a community engagement program um, and we started a, a COVID-19 relief fund, the black and gold relief fund. So we would have partners get involved in that. Um, but it was still challenging even with all those creative assets to still deliver value until we returned to play. And um, thankfully with the Orlando tournament in the bubble, uh, the league has, has opened up additional branding opportunities on our jersey um, has also created uh, digital signage assets that are visible tv visible that we can we can make up some of that lost value to our sponsors so we can include them on the uniform and also on the digital signage and that's gone a long way um, but it's still a question to see what the situation is going to look like when we come back to la you know with no fans potentially and and it's, uh, yeah, there's still a lot of question marks about how we can continue to drive value. And I'm sure every other sponsorship seller here has said, you know, we're in the business now of revenue pres preservation um, because it's tough to even get people to commit for 2021 when nobody knows what 2021 is going to look like. So we need to keep our current partners happy and engaged and, and drive value for them. Yeah, it's pretty insane. Um, it's almost like the world's reset. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's like, let's start, let's start all over again. You guys have had it too good for too long. so <laughs> it's, one, it's one way to look at it. I think, I think, you know, there's definitely those stages during the quarantine of like the first week was the disbelief. And then the next couple of weeks, everybody was like, well, maybe this is for the better, right? Like we, the rat race is now slowed. Everyone can reconnect with relatives that they don't call anymore and can do family Zoom happy hours every week. That probably lasted about two weeks and then that got old. <laughs> yes. And then, and then after that, it was just total, uh, just total boredom until things started opening up again. Until sport came back. Until sports came back, which is huge. I mean, you know, for, from a society perspective, I remember growing up in New York and this is a totally different crisis, but after nine 11, after hurricane Sandy, as well and and at least we had sports to bring us back you know from from this shock to the system and that was a sense of normalcy 
here we went over a hundred days with no sports. I mean, for us, it was 126 days until we, from when we stopped playing to when we played. So we couldn't, we didn't even have that. And that's not just us here in the United States. That's everywhere. Right. Except for maybe New Zealand, they got their sports back pretty quickly. Yeah. Australia tried um, with our Aussie rules. They, they tried to get it going at the start. Then the government's just, just cut them out. And then they came back and, now it's yeah. just a mad, it's a mad rush now. It's a mad rush, but anyway, yeah. it's all good. Um, you've, you've been on, you've been on a bit of a journey. You've uh, traveled from the East coast to the West coast, uh-huh. worked with uh, NFL teams, MLS stadiums like Madison square garden, where it all happens. Uh, I know the, I know MSG mostly for its boxing events. Nice. So it's um, it's 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 definitely a place where I've uh, watched a fair a fair bit of sporting. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a young man at school again. What's three tips you would give give to somebody trying to build a career in sport now now that you've built one? Yeah, <clears throat> I think number one, you have to get your foot in the door by getting an internship. And you, you have to be somewhat flexible with, with your, you know, your, your school schedule to get an internship. I mean, I know it was tough for me um, because my schedule my sophomore year didn't allow me to really have that much work experience uh, during the internship at the Jets and also with UBS. But then my junior and senior year, I shifted my schedule around to make sure that I had had two dedicated days during the week that I could totally focus on the internship and be in the office because the more face time you have in the office is the more opportunity you have to demonstrate your value and also meet people, internal stakeholders. So I, I really think number one, you got to get your foot in the door with an internship, even if it's with, you know, a minor league baseball team or, or anything, but some sort of work experience in the sports industry. So you can meet people, you can leverage their network and, and build that resume. Um, number two is once you do get an internship, you've got to network internally. You've got to meet as many people as you can, you know, for coffee, to even drop by their office and say, hey, this is me, I'm a new intern. I work in so-and-so department. I'd love to get to know about what you're doing. Um, everyone's gonna say yes. I mean, no one's gonna close the door. So I wish I had done more of that while I was at Madison Square Garden. Um, but I think that's how you maximize your internship is you have your foot in the door and now you've got to meet people um, internally. And then third is you need to work your ass off. Um, whether you're in your first job, you know, like inside sales, making a hundred phone calls a day, or you're still in your internship, you have to stand out and you've got to do the stuff that, that maybe you don't want to do. So, you know, if you, it's a school night and you know, you're working an event or a concert, stay there until everybody else has left, stay there till your managers have left and you're helping, you know, you're helping break down, you know, don't, don't say, Oh, like I've got an 8am class tomorrow. I've got to go back. You know, as, as long as you're the people you work for are still there, you've got to stay there and, and be the last one to leave and just put in the extra effort. Because people remember that. 
and they'll vouch for you. So you got to work, you got to work your ass off. Um, you mentioned get an internship. I mean, what, what are some of the measures that people have, have to go to, to, to get that internship? Because there's millions of students trying to get to get that same yeah. internship. I mean, yeah. And, and I, I don't want to make it sound like that's super easy. It's definitely not. I mean, with me, I got lucky because that event staff job, right? So I wouldn't like my work study job was event staff. If your college has a work study job like that, that's involved with the athletics department or an internship with your local, with your athletics department, do that. That's your work experience because then now your resume will be a bit different compared to all the other hundreds of resumes that a sports property or an agency will get because now you have relevant experience within sports from your college or your university. Um, so I would say look for those type of opportunities on campus. Um, and then if there's some sort of sports business club or society, get involved in that and become an executive officer on campus because there's always speakers that, that come to these events and it's a great opportunity to network and, and make yourself stand out. Um, and then network on LinkedIn. You got to network on LinkedIn and personalize these message, your, your, your message to, to whoever the professional is that you're reaching out to. So find common points of interest, you know, find your alumni from your university. That's always uh, an easy way to break in and get somebody's attention. Alumni want to help uh, students from their institution. So yeah, reach out to alumni and, and get relevant work experience from the university because every university has a, an athletics department or an event staff job. Um, so that'll make you different when you reach out to these organizations. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Terry, you've been amazing. We've, uh, we've spoken a ton. You've shared a great, uh, great ton of insight, value to these young ones to now take on board and go out there and start building their careers in sport. Um, before we wrap things up, firstly, I, I want to thank you for joining me. It's been an absolute blast. Where can people get in touch with you online? Uh, so LinkedIn, Terry Churitakis, if you can figure out how you can spell that. Um, it's, it's on LinkedIn. Send me a message. It's the easiest way to get in touch with me. Yeah, I'll put the, I'll, I'll put the link in, in our, <laughs> in our, in our show notes. Ladies and there gentlemen, uh, Mr. Terry Churitakis from the LA Football Club. Thank you very much for joining me on the Sports Finder podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Sports Finder podcast. We'll catch you on our next episode. Y'all ready for this?